Hi there, welcome to Just Us for Justice from Consumer Attorneys of California. I'm J.G. Preston, CAOC's press secretary. With me is the esteemed constitutional scholar Erwin Chemerinsky, who was the founding dean of the UC Irvine School of Law, is now the dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law. He's also taught law at USC and UCLA. We've had Dean Chemerinsky as a speaker at our annual convention in the past, and I'm glad he can join us today. Welcome, Erwin. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You said earlier this year that you had been wrong in avoiding the use of the term constitutional crisis to describe our current state in America. Is it getting worse? Yes. I tried to avoid using the phrase constitutional crisis. I tried to think of what might be the worst case scenario. What if after the November 2020 election, President Trump loses but refuses to leave office? Or what if court issues an order and he says, I don't care what the courts say, I'm going to do it anyway. That would truly be an extreme constitutional crisis. And yet, it's a mistake to think that the constitutional crisis has to take such an extreme form. Right now, literally every day, the President of the United States is violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution, the ones that say the President can't receive a benefit from a foreign government or a benefit from the United States government other than his salary. And President Trump has been violating these provisions since the moment he took office on January 20th, 2017. President Trump tried to get Congress to appropriate money to build a wall. Congress refused to do so. The government shut down for several weeks over it. Finally, they signed a budget and President Trump said, well, I'll spend the money anyway. To me, that's a clear violation of the Constitution that says that Congress has the spending power, not the president. We have thousands of people being detained in what can only be called concentration camps, children separated from their family, people being denied basic human necessities, and yet this is going on. To me, all of this is why we're in a constitutional crisis right now. Of course, the ultimate arbiter of a lot of these issues will be the Supreme Court of the United States. And with two members now having been appointed by President Trump, there's concern that the court's just becoming a rubber stamp for the president and his administration. Uh, do you agree? I have the concern. I think the record is mixed and uncertain at this point. In 2018, the Supreme Court decided Trump versus Hawaii. This involved President Trump's travel ban is a candidate for president. And after that, President Trump said he wanted a ban on Muslims entering the United States. And he said it many times. His top advisors said they wanted a Muslim ban on the United States. They identified initially seven and then eight countries that they were going to ban immigration from. And those countries shared three characteristics. They were all over 95% Muslim in population. None of them had ever been linked to a terrorist act in the United States, and Donald Trump had no economic investments in any of them. Mm -hmm. This seemed to me clearly unconstitutional. The government can't discriminate on the basis of religion. In, I think, a tragic Supreme Court decision, it ruled five to four that the travel ban was constitutional. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court, joined by Justice Kennedy, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. It really was the Supreme Court being a rubber stamp for Donald Trump. On the other hand, in June of 2019, the court decided Department of Commerce versus New York, in which the court invalidated the Department of Commerce asking a question on the 2020 census about citizenship. Chief Justice Roberts wrote, joined by Ginsburg, Bryson, and Kagan, 
and saying there was no valid justification offered for asking a question about citizenship. There's some very important cases coming to the court now, like whether President Trump could rescind DACA, the Deferred Action of Child Arrivals Program. They'll tell us a lot on whether the Supreme Court's going to stand up to President Trump or be a rubber stamp. Now, of course, the president's influence on the uh, federal courts goes well beyond the Supreme Court. Uh, what kind of an impact do you see him having had on the rest of the federal court system? President Trump is having an enormous impact on the federal judiciary. As we speak today, Donald Trump has appointed and had confirmed over 20% of the federal court of appeals judges. He's appointed a huge number of the district court judges. And this is still with at least a year and a half to go in his presidency and with the Republican Senate to confirm whoever he nominates. He's appointing young individuals and very conservative individuals. These are people who are going to be there long beyond the Trump presidency, long beyond my or President Trump's lifetime. I want to get into a couple of issues that don't necessarily involve the president, but certainly involve the Supreme Court and the federal courts. First, the way forced arbitration is playing out in the court system. Where do you see this going from here? This is one of the places where Donald Trump being elected president rather than Hillary Clinton is going to have an enormous effect with regard to justice in the legal system. The Supreme Court, in a series of 5-4 decisions, has said that arbitration clauses are to be enforced even when there are no possible way to be regarded as a free choice among the parties. So there was AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion where AT&T was advertising free cell phones and a couple came and signed up and then wanted to bring a suit against AT&T for fraud, but their, their contract, a clause that said any dispute had to go to arbitration. Now, the California Supreme Court said such arbitration clauses in routine contracts aren't a bargain for exchange. They shouldn't be enforceable, but the Supreme Court five to four, in their justly opinion, said they could. Or American Express versus Italian Colors Restaurant, where a restaurant wanted to sue American Express for antitrust violations. The case really couldn't go forward if it had to go to arbitration. And the Supreme Court said five to four, it has to go to arbitration. So my hope is that if Hillary Clinton had won, or say Merrick Garland had been confirmed, it would five to four to limit the enforcement of forced arbitration. I think that it would be so important in ensuring people having their day in court, access to the judiciary. But now, though, with Trump having put two justices on the court, you have a majority very much to enforce forced arbitration. So in 2018, in Epic Systems versus Lewis, the Supreme Court held that there must be forced arbitration and employers can insist on it as a condition of employment, notwithstanding a provision of the National Labor Relations Act that protects the right to engage in concerted activity for mutual aid or protection. Of course, we've made this an issue at the state level here in California. Can, can we overcome the, the, the federal encouragement of forced arbitration? The Supreme Court has said that the Federal Arbitration Act, a law adopted in 1925, preempts state law in the area. So when California said, we're not going to enforce these forced arbitration clauses, the Supreme Court said, no, that's preempted by federal law. So the ability of the state is very limited by the existence of the federal statute. 
Let's get into another issue that's uh, come before the courts in recent months, that of partisan gerrymandering, trying to set up uh, uh, electoral districts to favor one party or another. And there have been cases that have favored both Republicans and Democrats in different states. Uh, You wrote that in deciding that federal courts couldn't hear challenges to partisan gerrymandering, they abdicated their most important role, which was enforcing the U.S. Constitution. I very much believe that. Partisan gerrymandering, of course, is with a political party that controls the legislature, draws election districts to maximize the seats for that party. It's where, say, a Republican-controlled state legislature draws election districts to maximize the seats for Republicans. Partisan gerrymandering is nothing new. It takes its name from a governor of Massachusetts early in American history, Elbridge Geary, who engaged in the practice. But what's changed is that because of sophisticated computer programs, it's possible to engage in partisan gerrymandering with far more precision than ever before. Take as an example of the Supreme Court case from June 27, 2019, Rucho versus Common Cause. It comes out of North Carolina. North Carolina is basically a purple state. It went for Obama in 2008, Romney in 2012, Trump in 2016, but always by close margins, 51 to 49, 52 to 48%. Republicans got a majority of the state legislature and then redrew election districts to give themselves a supermajority of both houses. They then set out to draw congressional districts. A written report candidly said that the goal was to give Republicans control of 10 of 13 seats from North Carolina in the House of Representatives. And the report said if we could come up with a way to give us more seats than that, we would. The computer drew 3,000 different maps, and the Republicans, of course, picked the one that would maximize their chances of controlling 10 of 13 congressional seats. In the November 2016 elections, Democrats and Republicans got almost the same amount of votes with regard to seats for the House of Representatives in North Carolina, but Republicans controlled 10 of 13 seats. A challenge was brought saying this violates the Constitution. A three-judge federal district court said it did violate the Constitution. But the Supreme Court on June 27th reversed. It was five to four. Chief Justice Roberts wrote, joined by Justice Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And here there was a blistering dissent by Justice Kagan, joined by Justice Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Chief Justice Roberts said that the matter is what's called in the law a political question. That means that it's a matter left to the political process. He said, there's no standards for deciding when partisan gerrymandering violates the Constitution. Since the question is, what's too much? We don't have a basis for answering that. He said, we'll just leave this to the political process. Justice Kagan in a vehement dissent says, none of the nine justices deny that this violates the Constitution. In a democracy, it's supposed to be voters who choose their elected officials. Partisan journey means selected officials choosing their voters. She said, we can't leave this to the political process. Politicians who benefit from gerrymandering aren't about to vote themselves out of office. She said, we can come up with a legal test. Like most legal tests, focus on the purpose, focus on the effect, focus on causation. The result is going to be that legislatures, after the 2020 census, can engage in partisan gerrymandering with impunity knowing it can't be challenged in federal court. Now, there's still the possibility of state courts providing remedies. Just recently, the North Carolina State Court of Appeals struck down the state's partisan gerrymandering based on the North Carolina Constitution 
just a couple of years ago, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found the Pennsylvania gerrymandering violated the Pennsylvania Constitution, but there's no remedy under the U.S. Constitution. Mm. And, and that kind of leads me to another topic. You spoke recently about how it's state courts and state constitutions that are now more important than ever in protecting a lot of these rights. In 1977, then Justice William Brennan wrote an article in the Harvard Law Review calling on the greater use of state courts and state constitutions to protect individual liberties. He saw how much more conservative the court was with the appointment of four Nixon justices, he saw the end of what we referred to as the Warren Court and encouraged litigants to turn to state courts. Well, now, more than 40 years later, the courts are far more conservative than they were then. The Trump appointees are much more conservative than the Nixon appointees were. And so in many areas, we're gonna to need to turn to state courts and state constitutions to protect rights. No longer in many areas will be able to rely on the U.S. Supreme Court. And we've had a lot of headlines here in the state of California in the last year and a half uh, with the leadership of Attorney General Becerra suing the Trump administration on a number of fronts from immigration to environmental issues. There have been a couple dozen lawsuits, I guess. It's kind of hard to keep track of them all. Generally, how do you think that the state's going to fare on these various battlefronts? So far, the state is faring well, and I think it is going to fare well. I think so many of these suits are on very solid legal grounds. I think this part of the Trump administration very much overreaching. And so, for example, the Trump administration threatened that cities and states that don't cooperate with ICE immigration officials will lose their federal funding. And so far, every federal court to rule on the issue has said that the Trump administration loses, that it violates the Constitution for the government to coerce state and local governments in terms of behavior. In the environmental area, California can always set stricter environmental standards than federal law unless Congress clearly prohibits this. President Trump is rescinding environmental protections more than any other president in history. No other Republican president has dismantled environmental law in the way of President Trump. And he's doing it at a time when we recognize that there's an existential threat to the planet. Well, California's trying to act and have other states act so as to deal with greenhouse gas emissions. And I think California is going to be able to win that unless and until Congress wants to pass a law keeping California from doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've had the uh, law signed earlier this year by Governor Newsom requiring presidential candidates in California to release their tax returns to be listed on the primary ballot. Uh, there's been controversy about this. You've argued that this is clearly constitutional. Yes, I think it's constitutional for a couple of reasons. One is that states are allowed to set conditions for who's listed on the ballot so long as they don't discriminate on the basis of wealth on the basis of party ideology. This law doesn't do that. This law just says, if you want to be on the ballot, you've got to disclose your tax returns. Anybody, no matter what their wealth, can do it. It applies to Democrats and Republicans alike, and it's something simple to do. Virtually every presidential candidate has done this since 1976. The second thing is that the law serves a very important state interest, informing the voters giving the voters key information that they may need to make their choice. Knowing somebody's tax returns can tell us a lot. 
It can help alert us to conflicts of interest. It can help identify undue foreign influence. It can give us a sense whether this is somebody who's been paying his or her fair share of the taxes. And so the law seems directed at Donald Trump, but it's not. It's a general law. It may have been motivated by the Trump experience, but it wasn't realized before Trump that somebody could run for president and say, I'm not telling you my tax returns. His only reason is that he says, because he's being audited, he can't disclose. And everybody says, that's nonsense. Um, even if I'm audited, I can still disclose my tax returns. Uh, I hate to ask you to predict, but do you think uh, Donald Trump will be on the California primary ballot next year? I asked you to predict anyway, so. I think the California law is going to get upheld by the courts. I think Donald Trump is not going to release his tax returns. And I can then imagine his not being on the ballot, but it won't matter. I know he has challengers. I know Mark Sanford, the former governor of South Carolina, has declared. But Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee for president. I think he's going to be the Republican nominee, and I don't think he's going to disclose his tax returns in 2020 any more than he did in 2016. Mm -hmm. I think we now have to ask, what is he trying to hide from us by not disclosing his tax returns? And there's a lot of speculation about that. It's very troubling speculation. You wrote last month that the Second Amendment is no obstacle to effective gun control. In that case, what can be done? The obstacle to effective gun control is the political will to do so. It's not the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, the Supreme Court so far said, is a right people have guns in their homes for the sake of security. It's not a right to have guns near schools or airports. It's not a right of people with a history of mental illness or criminal record of guns. And it's not a right to have assault and semi-assault weapons. So the government could do so many things. It could create universal background registration requirements for guns. It could close the loopholes where people get guns without background checks online or at gun shows. It could create limits on the type of weapons people have. We had a ban on assault and semi-assault weapons until it expired during the George W. Bush presidency. Congress can, states can again ban assault rifles. The Congress, the states can ban large capacity magazines. They and assault and semi-assault rifles have no use but to kill a large number of people in a short period of time. Every major mass shooting has been using these semi-assault and assault weapons. Congress should prohibit those. You've been studying and teaching constitutional law for 40 years now, Erwin. Have you ever seen a time remotely like this? No. And in so many ways, we've never seen a president like this. We've never seen a president who's so defiant of the law, who cares so little about the Constitution. We've never seen a, a president who has set out to dismantle so much of the federal government. We've not, in the last 40 years, seen a time when our country is as deeply polarized as it is right now. Now, we certainly, as a country, been polarized before. I would say the Civil War would be an example of even more polarized. But the kind of polarization that exists now really makes me worry. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how, how worried are you about the state of our country? Where can we go from here? It depends on when you ask me. <laughs> I have times of being optimistic. The Constitution has survived since 1787. It survived... Civil War and Reconstruction and two world wars in the 20th century and 
the Vietnam War, in the civil rights movement, in the Nixon administration. And I like to believe it's strong enough it can survive Donald Trump too. I like to believe that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got it right when he said, the, or the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. So I can be an optimist and think there will be a point at which we see advancement of equality and greater freedom for people. And then there's moments where I'm very pessimistic. What's it going to mean to have a Supreme Court that's as conservative as this current court for another couple of decades? Or what's it going to mean to have federal court of appeals and district judges who are so conservative are going to be on the bench the next 30 and 40 years? What's it going to mean when we look at how the federal government has dismantled so many protections, like the ones we were talking about in the environmental area? I guess the answer to your question is, if we could talk on January, or I guess November of 2020, the day after election day, I'll tell you if I'm more optimistic or more pessimistic. I think that if Donald Trump wins a second term, I think there's every reason for great pessimism. I think the country will survive one term of Donald Trump. I don't think that it could survive a second. I think it will unleash his authoritarian impulses. I think he'll take it as a mandate to be defiant of the checks and balances that exist in the government. And I think it will be infinitely harder to rebuild government after two Trump terms. Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law. Really enjoyed the conversation, Erwin. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Anytime. My pleasure. Just Us for Justice comes from Consumer Attorneys of California, produced by Chris Weaver, executive producer Eric Bailey. I'm J.G. Preston. We'll see you again soon. The Just Us for Justice podcast is brought to you by the Consumer Attorneys of California. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes. Music was provided by www.bensound.com. Questions or comments? Email us at justuspodcast at caoc.org.